0: is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI, News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com.
1: The opinions voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC. A registered investment advisor.
2: Welcome to Wealth Wake Up this Sunday morning. Dick Donahue, financial advisor, wealth advisor, here with you. Let's start out talking about what we think could be happening with the market as we move ahead. So we're gonna talk about the S&P 3900 and the Dow at 33,000. You know, predicting stock values in 23 is tough. We have had unprecedented actions during COVID leaves a wide range of possible outcomes. Let us explain a little bit. As always, we start out with our capitalized profits model. The model takes a government measure of nationwide profits from the GDP report discounted by the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield to calculate fair value for stocks. These data go back to the early 1950s, so almost 70 years. Our measure of profits, which excludes the profits earned by the Federal Reserve System, were up 2% in the third quarter, or up 7.8% from a year ago, and were up 23.4% versus the pre-COVID peak. One interesting thing to think about is that while profits rose 7.8% during the year ending the third quarter, the GDP price index was up 7.1%. Very slow growth in inflation-adjusted profits and higher interest rates combined to push stock values down in 2022. So, using a 10-year Treasury yield of 3.6%, which is near the Friday's close, to discount profits suggests that the S&P index is fairly valued at about 3700 At a 10-year Treasury yield of 4%, fair value would be 3350 Fair value for the S&P 500 index would also be about 3350 if the 10-year yield stays at 3.6% and profits go down 10%, which is what we'd expect to happen in a recession. But what happens if the 10-year yield goes up to 4% and we get a recession? Then fair value would be 3000 The problem with this scenario is that we get a recession. The 10-year yield is unlikely to stay as high as 4%. So it appears there will be no double whammy for stocks. However, if even one of these downside risks occur, higher rates and or profits recession, the fair value drops or even temporarily to 3350, then stocks will likely spend some time around 3350 just because stocks always will vary above and below actual fair value. That suggests the low for the S&P 500 of about 3200 And our forecast is that the U.S. economy enters a recession around mid-23 for two reasons. First, we never fully felt the impact of lockdowns because we flooded the system with liquidity and borrowed money. And second, monetary policy is now in reverse. And a monetary policy tight enough to slow inflation is likely to generate a recession as well. So it's hard to see the fed going from very rapid M2 growth in 2021 to essentially zero M2 growth in 22 without the economy at least temporarily hitting a brick wall. However, stocks are likely to bottom within the next first few months of the recession as investors realize that this is not another financial panic like in 2008 and 9. That would give stocks room for a rally late in the year even if a recession continues as equities see the light at the end of the tunnel. So as a result, we are comfortable with a forecast of the S&P 500 finishing next year around 3,900, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average at around 33,000, not much change from where we are today. Obviously, it it turns out that Chairman Powell and the Federal Reserve have engineered a soft landing, no recession in 23, and with the market ending 23 confident of not having a recession in 24, then stocks should rally substantially in 23 and easily beat our S&P 500 target of 3,900. By contrast, if it turns out that a recession starts later in 23, providing less time for a rally from the bottom, or if a recession turns deeper than we expect, then stocks could finish 2023 substantially below 3900 The bottom line is that while stocks suffered this year from higher interest rates, the greatest headwind in 23 should be lower profits. We expect the next bull market will be prolonged and strong, but for the time being, the economy still needs to pay a price for the massive artificial stimuluses of 2021. 20 Part of that bill comes due this year, and we think the rest comes due in 2023. So let's talk about our weekly wrap-up this week, a little different format than normal. But we saw a faltering finish. The major U.S. stock indices fell around 2%, declining for the second week in a row. They're retreating less than they had the previous week. And with a couple of weeks left this year, recession fears continue to weigh on the markets. And semi hawkish Fed report this week, as expected, the U.S. Federal Reserve lifted its benchmark interest rate for the seventh time this year, approving a more moderate half-percentage point increase relative to its recent three-quarter point hikes. However, Fed officials expect to keep the benchmark rate at a higher peak level next year than many observers had forecast, and stocks mostly retreated following Wednesday afternoon's announcement. And then we're seeing that shopping is slowing down when a worse-than-expected U.S. retail sales report weighed on stocks on Thursday, added to fears that further interest rate increases could tip the economy into a recession. Sales fell of percent in November, reversing course from previous month's gain and recording the biggest decline in 11 months. And then there's that tightening trend with the U.S. Federal Reserve at plenty of company and lifting rates by half percentage points. The central banks in Europe, in the European Union, the United Kingdom and Switzerland also raised borrowing costs by the same amount. The United Kingdom's Bank of England said it believes the economy is in a recession. And we're also seeing signs that inflation is easing. U.S. prices rose at a 7.1% annual rate in November, as measured by the Consumer Price Index, marking the smallest year over year increase since last December. Excluding food and energy costs, core inflation rose by two tenths of 1% relative to the previous month, which is the smallest increase since August of 2021. And we also saw down in December. If December ends up positive overall for the stock market, it'll require a significant rebound in the final two weeks of the year, an occurrence of sometimes called a Santa Claus rally. Over the first two weeks of December, the S&P 500 was down nearly 6% as of Friday. And 2022 earnings entering the final two weeks of the year, Wall Street analysts expect that 2022's earnings growth rate for the S&P 500 companies will average 5.3%, according to FactSet. If that year-over-year forecast is achieved, it would be a big slowdown from 2021's growth rate of 47.9% over the past 10 years. And we think there's a price check ahead. A report scheduled to release on this Friday will be closely watched for any signs that U.S. inflation continued to moderate in November. The government will update its personal consumption expenditures price index, which is the Fed's preferred gauge for inflation. And let's talk about the consumer price index report that came out this week. Consumer prices rose a tenth of 1% in November. Falling well short of the consensus expected 3 tenths of 1% and pushing the year ago comparisons down 7.1%. Some analysts will argue the smaller than expected monthly rise means that the Fed's job of fighting inflation is over. We say pump the brakes. No matter which way you cut it, inflation remains well above the Federal Reserve's target of 2%. The smaller-than-expected monthly rise was held down by a number of categories that declined for the month, some of which have been persistently volatile since the 2020 inflation scare began. Energy prices declined 1.6% in November, driven by lower prices for gasoline down 2% and natural gas down 3.5%. Stripping out energy and other volatile counterpart food prices, core prices rose 2 tenths of 1% versus a consensus expected rise of 3 tenths of 1% and housing rents were the main upward driver within the core, rising 10 10.7 tenths of 1% for the month. We expect housing rents to remain consistently high in 23 because they still have a long way to go to catch up to home prices, which skyrocketed during COVID. Some analysts point to a real-time rental index is based on what new tenants are paying, which may have softened in the last couple of months, if also foreshadowing a dump in CPI rents, But this process will take some time before they bleed into the CPI, which covers all tenants and homeowners, not just new tenants. Meanwhile, there was a handful of CPI categories that declined for the month, including prices for airline fares down 3%, used vehicles down 2.9%, medical care services down 7 tenths of 1%, And while prices for vehicles and airline fare have been very volatile since COVID began, we expect the category for medical care service to be a persistent drag on inflation for the next year due to the way the government tracks health care prices and makes adjustments once a year in October. And while the report may be a welcome sign to the markets, make no mistake, the Fed has still a long way to go before we can say that the inflation scare is over. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We'll be back shortly.
3: You're used to bundling up this time of year, but outside, not in your own home. Hi, Joe Tian here for my friends at West Mechanical, heating, air conditioning, and electric, your independent train dealer. You won't have to wear a bulky sweater inside with a new train heating system that's a perfect fit. Their pros analyze your home and give you an honest assessment of your best options. And West Mechanical has some great financing options for up to 72 months. Subject to credit approval, call for details. If your system is still working, regular service by the West Mechanical Pros will keep it in top condition for its longest life possible. And it's not too late to schedule an appointment. They check and service mine each year, and I'm confident we'll be comfortable all season long. The train comfort specialists at West Mechanical are the best of the best, and they back up their work with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Get to know the great folks at West Mechanical today at westmechanical.net. That's westmechanical.net. And remember, it's hard to stop a train.
1: Are you on Medicare or individual health insurance and wondering if you are on the right plan for you and your family? This is Marcia Neal with Vibrant USA. We understand the TV advertising and the mail you have been receiving may create more questions than answers. Although deadlines are coming, you may still have time to make a change. So call Vibrant USA at 866-733-5111. Our agents can review your plan options, answer your questions, and put your mind at ease. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group.
3: If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife.
2: Welcome back to Wolf Wake Up. Dick Down here with you this Sunday morning here on KGMI. Our asset advisors were located out in Ferndale next to Wilson's Furniture on the Pacific Highway. Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number 360-733-1200. Let's continue on with this week's economic reports. We had the November retail sales report come out, and retail sales sank in November, falling six tenths of one percent, taking a breather after a booming report in October. The weakness was widespread as only four of 13 retail categories grew in November, with the declines led by autos and building materials dropping 2.3% and 2.5% respectively. So does this mean the economy is finally rolling over into recession? We don't think so. Part of this is a payback for the massive report that came through in October, with some of this as a continued shift to more spending on services from goods. In fact, the only service category in the retail sales report, restaurants and bars, rose tenths of 1% in November, is up 14.1% over the past year. And core sales, which exclude the most volatile categories of autos, building materials and gas stations, were unchanged in November. The problem remaining is that one of the key drivers of the overall spending is inflation. Yes, consumers are spending more, but they're not taking home the same amount of goods. Although overall retail sales are up 6.5% from a year ago, that pace is not out-inflating inflation, with the CPI up 7.1% over the same period. And due to a very loose monetary policy and the massive increase in government transfer payments in response to COVID, retail sales are still running higher than they would have had COVID never happened. However, loose monetary policy which helped finance the big increase in government spending is translating into higher inflation, which is why real inflation adjusted retail sales are lower versus a year ago. This doesn't mean that overall consumer spending is down. Real inflation adjusted spending on goods and especially services are still rising. But it does mean that overall real consumer spending continues to remain soft. So, what to expect in the month ahead well retail sales will struggle to keep pace with inflation while overall consumer spending increases modestly due to the services sector as consumers shift their preferences away from goods and back to services but ultimately what the data shows is that the federal reserve needs to stay the course and continue to tighten monetary policy In other news, import prices declined 6 tenths of 1% in November, while export prices fell 3 tenths of 1%. Still, in the past year, import prices are up 2.7%, while export prices are up 6.3%. In another news, initial unemployment claims fell 20,000 last week to 211,000. Continuing claims ticked up 1,000 to 1.671 million. And combining these figures suggests that the job growth remains positive but will slow sometime in the months ahead. And let's take a look also at the November Industrial Production and Capacity Utilization Report. And industrial activity in the U.S. fell for a second straight month in November, with nearly all major categories posting declines. The manufacturing sector was the biggest contributor to the negative headline number, with production falling 6 tenths of 1%. So looking at the details, both auto and non-auto manufacturing dropped in November, posting declines at 2.8% and 4 tenths of 1%, respectively. Given the trend of American consumers shifting their preferences back towards services and away from goods, the weak numbers out of the manufacturing sector aren't surprising. That said, production of consumer goods is up 1.8% in the past year, while the production of business equipment is up 5.7%. This signals that investment in capital goods might be beginning to drive demand for the manufacturing sector as end consumers ease up. Another source of weakness in the report was the mining sector, which posted a decline of 7 tenths of 1% in November. A slower pace of crude oil and natural gas and other mineral extraction more than offset gains in the drilling of new wells. However, this signals that oil prices which are currently hovering near $80 a barrel continue to incentivize new exploration. Given this exploration will translate into more production in the near future, mining could be a source of relative strength in industrial production in 2023. And finally, the one bright spot in the report came from the utility sector, which is largely dependent on weather, which posted a gain of 3.6% in November. And in other manufacturing news, the Empire State Index, which is a measure of New York factory sentiment, fell to minus 11.2 in December from plus four and a half in November. Meanwhile, the Philadelphia Fed index, its counterpart for that region, rose to minus 13.8 in December from minus 19.4 in November. So we continue to anticipate a recession in 2023 with the good sector leading the way. However, continuing strength in services tells us that it isn't here yet. And we had the Fed do its... uh, meeting here. They finished on Wednesday and, Wednesday, and we'll talk a little bit about that. We think they have more work to do, as the Fed's downshifted to smaller rate hikes, but it isn't close to done. In contrast to the 75 basis point hikes of each of the last four meetings, the Federal Reserve raised short-term rates by 50 basis points. That was a half a percent, as expected. However, the Fed made it clear in its projections that the press conference that it tilted towards further rate hikes in the months ahead, and more rate hikes than the market had been pricing in. The Fed's statement was virtually identical to the one in November. The economic projections released at the same time brought a lot more to digest. Economic growth expectations were raised modestly for the year, but 2023 growth was cut from 1.2% real inflation-adjusted rate to the Fed forecast of September down to half a percent. At the same time, 2023 PCE inflation expectations were raised to 3.1%. We would take that over. From, from 2.8% and the unemployment rate moved to 4.6% from 4.4%. So despite the weaker growth in employment outlook, the dot plot showed a higher path for rates, with the median for finishing 2023 at 5.8%, an versus September's eight percent forecast. The Fed is clearly showing that despite pain on its employment side of the dual mandate, inflation is the priority. And a look at the distribution of rate hikes forecast for twenty three and beyond shows that many members believe a higher end point for rates will likely be appropriate. Case in point, while the twenty twenty three median dot stands at five and eighth percent, seven FOMC members believe that the rate should end the year even higher, which while just two believe that rates would should end lower. And during the press conference, Powell was pressed for more details of the path forward as we look, look like. Nick Tamarios, Wall Street Journal's Fed reporter, who many watch as an unofficial mouthpiece of Powell and Company, asked if the Fed can now transition to 25 basis points moving forward until they reach their terminal rate. While Powell wouldn't commit to the size of the next rate hike, they will likely come early in February, he suggested, and the Fed has now moved to a range where smaller hikes look appropriate as they close in on the terminal rate. Powell is also asked what the rate cuts could come into play. Again, he remained noncommittal, but he did say that the dot plots for 23 do not include any rate cuts between now and the end of next year. And finally, Powell was asked directly if a recession in 2023 would cause the Fed to start easing policy sooner, to which he stated that he, they were tasked with promoting maximum employment and price stability and inflation. The employment market is running hot, while inflation is well above the Fed's target. In other words, the Fed is comfortable continuing to raise rates even as unemployment rises, at least modestly. And while, that isn't, and while they aren't forecasting a recession in the year ahead, and we are, it doesn't change their priorities. The bottom line is that, as good as the Fed has prioritized the fight against inflation, but the necessary path to get there will likely bring volatility and short term pain to the financial markets. We expect the markets will end next year largely flat from where we stand today, but the market could see uh, notable pullbacks along the way. The economic medicine while bitter, is part of the price that we're going to pay for the policy mistakes that have been made over the past few years. This is Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We're going to go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back in a few minutes. At Western Solar, we believe that integrity and
4: craftsmanship are foundational to everything that we do. It's who we are and why we back up that statement with something tangible so that you know we are invested in the quality of your installation. We guarantee for 25 years that if your equipment fails, we will replace it at no cost. We also guarantee that your solar panels will generate at least 92% of their rated capacity 25 years from the day they're installed. We can commit to these guarantees because we invest in our employees and we recognize the quality of their work. In fact, we're continuing to grow and looking to hire, train, and invest in new team members. We provide the most comprehensive warranty coverage in the area because integrity and craftsmanship guide our every decision. We strongly believe that when we invest in our employees, they invest in our customers and the community wins. Stop by our office on Home Road in Bellingham to meet our team and you'll see why that for almost two decades we've been installing clean energy, investing in our community, and loving what we do. Western Solar at westernsolarinc.com.
0: Bellingham Athletic Club knows fitness and understands what it takes to maintain an active lifestyle. They've been the leader in fitness for Whatcom County since 1975. If you're looking for a motivating atmosphere, BAC is the place to be, and now is the time to join. Give yourself the gift of fitness this holiday season because you're worth it. Stop by and see them. You'll be glad you did. Bellingham Athletic Club, where healthy isn't just a goal, it's a way of life. Located at 4191 Meridian and at BellinghamAthleticClub.com. Hi, it's Scott from Northwest Sleep Solutions in Fairhaven. As we wind down yet another year, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank each and every one of our customers for their support. Your referrals and best wishes really keep us going and we really, really appreciate it. As we roll into the new year, Northwest Sleep will continue to bring the best mattresses from Simmons Beautyrest, Tempur-Pedic, 45th Street Natural Latex, and our own eco-friendly line, all at the best prices in the area. Add to that an ever-expanding choice of pillows and accessories, and our selection is second to none. And as always, we will continue to do the little things, the little extras that remind you of why you shop with us in the first place. So happy holidays, Washington County, from all of us at Northwest Sleep Solutions on the corner of 10th and Mackenzie and Fairhaven. Northway, Northway, The solution, the solution for a good night's sleep.
2: Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up, Dick Downing here with you this Sunday morning on KGMI. You know, nearly one-third of Americans now say that finances have worsened over the past year, according to a new survey. An increasing number of Americans are feeling financially stressed, and maybe ped- many are pessimistic that things will get better in 2023. The annual New Year's Resolution study found that nearly one-third, one in three Americans, or 29%, said that their financial situation is worse now than a year ago. It's an increase of 19% in 2021. It also found that 18 expect their situation to get worse. That's up from 12% last year. There also was a decrease in respondents who indicated that their financial situation is better than a year ago, 22% versus 19%. And those who said their financial picture remained the same are 58% versus 53%. Not surprisingly, the rising cost of living has been a top concern for respondents, with more than half, 52%, citing rising inflation as their first or second most worrisome threat in the next year. This is up from 38% in 2021, the study noted and more than a third or 36% of respondents also cited inflation as the greatest threat to retirement savings and retirement plan in 2023. That compared to 25% in 2021 and 8% in 2020. The study also found that Gen Xers of 41% led the way when it comes to feeling more financially stressed in 22, followed by 36% of millennials and 27% of baby boomers and Gen Xers, 34%, were more likely to say that their financial situation worsened over the last year compared to Boomers at 31% or Millennials at 21%. As for feeling most optimistic their financial situation will improve next year, Millennials led with 44% compared with 25% of of Gen Xers and 16% of Boomers. The survey also revealed that job change could be on the horizon for many Americans, more than half, or 53 percent, of respondents signaled that they're likely to start or continue searching for a new job in 23. 42 percent, they all said, they're also likely to search for a new job and cited salary or low pay for their skill set. They also cited lack of opportunity to advance career, 26 percent, lack of flexibility to work when they were where, where and when they desired, 25 percent, and toxic company culture and workplace, 25 percent. The study was conducted online in November, included over 1,000 adult respondents. We're also seeing that mortgage rates are dropping for the fifth straight week. U.S. mortgage rates dropped for a fifth straight week, bringing slight relief to a housing market that has been slammed by the rise in borrowing costs this year. The average for a 30-year fixed mortgage fell to 6.31%, which is the lowest in September, Freddie Mac said in a statement on Thursday. This year's surge in borrowing costs has plummeted the demand in the housing market, sidelining potential buyers and even leading some sellers to hold back on listing their homes. The rates have started to ease over the past month, with leading to a slight uptick in applications to buy new homes. The good news for the housing market is that the recent declines in rates have led to a stabilization in purchase demand. The bad news is that the demand remains very weak in the face of affordability hurdles that are still quite high. The overall climb in borrowing costs throughout the year will continue to impact the market. Brokerage and daddy company Redfin Corp. expects 2023 to be the slowest year for U.S. housing since 2011, even as the firm forecasts a slight increase in rates by the end of next year. And buyers have been squeezed by affordability issues. The monthly payment on a $600,000 loan at current rates is $3,718. That is up from $2,565 at the end of last year. Pretty big change. And we're also seeing that U.S. freelancing searches to a record of 60 million Americans go a solo. So a minute ago I talked about people making job change. We're also seeing a lot of people decide to go out on their own. And the number of Americans who freelance this past year surged to nearly 60 million, signaling a change in how people assess their values and priorities around work. Another 39% of the entire U.S. workforce freelanced this year compared with 36% in 2021. A study by freelance platform Upwork Inc. showed people are redefining what work means beyond traditional career paths a trend that's accelerated since the pandemic when millions lost their jobs or were forced to work from home with the economy having rebounded since since some u.s employers now struggling to fill jobs in the tightest labor market in decades more people are emboldened to go solo giving themselves more flexibility and autonomy the study found that 81% of freelancers chose the option to have more control over their careers, and 73% said that perceptions of freelancing as a career are becoming more positive, up from 68% in 2021. A nine to five in awful single employer model is not what all people want anymore. People born in the late 1990s, known as Generation Z, and so-called millennials born from 1981 to 1996 are most likely to explore freelancing, With 43% of all Gen Z professionals and 46% of millennials performing such work in 2022, the report showed about 70% of U.S. workers seek multiple sources of income from a mix of traditional employment and freelance work, up 3 percentage points from 2021. And freelancing has also become more popular among those with postgraduate degrees with 26% of them opting for gig work holding such qualifications this year that is six percentage points higher than in 2021 okay well we're seeing a lot of things going on out here we're seeing credit card delinquencies are on the rise in, to rise this next year, according to TransUnion. The U.S. credit card and personal loan delinquencies are likely to rise to 2023, the highest in a dozen years, with lenders cutting back on originations as a potential recession looms. Serious card delinquencies are expected to climb to 2.6% at the end of next year from 2.1% at the close of twenty-two, according to a forecast released Wednesday by credit reporting firm TransUnion. Delinquency rates for unsecured personal loans are also expected to gain 4.3% from 4.1%. The liquidity people had it going away. Inflation is a huge contributor. Credit card originations are expected to slump 7.6% next year, which still remaining high from last year's total. The projected drop-off would follow two years of aggressive loan growth, especially for credit cards and personal loans, and seriously delinquent rates close to pre-pandemic levels. As COVID-19 pandemic restrictions are lifted, in turn consumers returning to spending, including tapping their credit cards. But even as delinquency rates increase, Consumers overall are not overextended. Outside of credit cards and personal loans, another area of lending is seeing a drop-off in originations and mortgages. The Federal Reserve has been boosting in interest rates in an attempt to dampen inflation, increases that have made their way to home loan costs. The average rate for a 30-year fixed loan mortgage <laughs> fixed loan surged past 7% earlier. As I reported earlier, it has recently dropped, though, but that's the first time it's broken that level in two decades. And originations of loans for home purchases and to refinance existing mortgages have dropped off as a result and are expected to continue sliding next year TransUnion Union predicts 2023 per church's originations are just above 4 million about half their level last year and refinance or originations are forecast to be just over a million which would be a low in data peak reaching back to 18 years. There are other opportunities for Americans seeking financing and for lenders in search of customers. Home equity originations are expected to soar 24% next year, with homeowners looking to tap the sizable equity that they build up in their properties. Another very opportunity for opportunity lenders is auto loan originations. TransUnion said an expected growth of 6% across borrower risk tiers in the fourth quarter of next year. Delinquencies, on the other hand, are predicted to be weak this quarter. And got another interesting report out here this week. I thought was interesting. And talking about these U.S. towns that are getting a lot more expensive in the past decade, and two towns on either side of the country have risen fastest in the rankings of America's costliest place to live over the past dozen years, according to data published by the Bureau of Economic Analysis on Thursday. In the last, since the start of last decade, Wenatchee, Washington was around the middle of 389 U.S. metro areas ranked by price level. But by last year, it had become the 36th most expensive city in the country, according to the Bureau's latest data on regional price parity. The um, second biggest climber is Villages in Florida, a massive retirement community where prices have been lifted relative to the rest of the country and by an inflow of people seeking housing and goods. So, measured by state, the most expensive places to live last year were Hawaii, California, and New York. The cheapest were Mississippi, Alabama, and Kentucky. San Francisco's remaining the most expensive U.S. city last year has held the top spot since 2018. New York City, the nation's 2nd priciest metro area before the pandemic, has now dropped to fourth place. The price gap between San Francisco and the rest of the country... is is at least narrowed a little. Prices were 22% higher than the U.S. average in 2018, and now the difference is down to 20%. So if we look at the U.S. metros that have become more expensive and they climb in rankings among metro areas between 2010 and 2021, Wenatchee went up 158 places, the villages in Florida went up 155, Jackson, Mississippi up 144, Grants Pass, Oregon up 142, Stanton, Virginia up 136, Bismarck, North Dakota up 131. Madeira, California up 121 places Longview, Washington up 119 places Winchester, Virginia um, uh, Also West Virginia up 114 places And then the costliest cities in the America San Francisco, Oakland and Berkeley Is the highest San Diego, uh, Carlsbad area, California is second Uh, Urban Honolulu is third New York, New Jersey uh, is fourth Seattle, Tacoma, Bellevue is actually the 5th highest, Los Angeles, Long Beach, and Anaheim is the 6th largest, Napa, California is 7th, uh, Lahaina, California, Hawaii is up number 8, Santa Maria, Santa Barbara, California is 9, San Jose, Santa Clara is 10, Thousand Oaks, California, Ventura area is 11, and number 12 is the Washington, Arlington, in Virginia area back in Washington, D.C. Dick Donahue with you with Wolf Wake up here on KGMI. We'll be back shortly.
0: You go to great lengths to keep your carpet clean. Kids, get out of the living room. You spend your days scolding loved ones. Honey, take your shoes off. And trying to create an invisible shield to keep all the dirt and stains out. Welcome to our home, and just please stay on the plastic, okay? From summer's barbecue stains to your kid's dirty cleats, call Swans today or visit them online at swanscarpetcleaning.com. I'm ready for Christmas. The shopping is all done, and the gifts are wrapped. What did you get me? Who was that? Me, your house. I was thinking I deserve a gift this year too. What were you thinking? I'm getting older and could use some updates. My heating and cooling systems are getting older, and they're not as efficient. It'd be nice to replace them before they totally fail. That is a good idea. I heard Linden Sheet Metal is having a winter sale. They are a great company. And hey, while you're at it, a cozy fireplace might be nice. And Linden Sheet Metal has those too. Give your home a
1: gift this Christmas season. We have furnace, air conditioning, and heat pump discounts up to $900 off. Utility rebates up to $1,500, and starting January 1st, there are tax credits up to $2,000, and it doesn't end there. All our showroom fireplaces are 40% off, and new ones are $300 off installation. Linden Sheet Metal, serving the Northwest for over
0: 80 years. KGMI Connects with Joe Tian is about our community and you. Yeah, I happen to believe that the Bellingham, Whatcom County, uh, the Fraser River Delta, and that Nooksack Skagit is an enormous healing area. Each weekday at 4 p.m. I'm the old dog. When I walk down railroads, I'm the one who knows who just got here and who didn't. I see them, they're so angry from where they came from, and then through the years, they mellow out because there's a healing energy here. On KGMI 790, 96.5 FM, and KGMI.com. Cause there ain't no doubt, I love this
2: land, God bless the USA. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up, Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning. Got questions for me? Give me a call, 360-733-1200. Get a lot of questions from listeners, common retirement questions. Had one recently about whether I should convert IRA assets into a Roth IRA. And, of course, that's one of the most common questions we get. You know, basically, should I convert assets to a Roth? And if so, how much and when? Well, you know, we look at this for a long-term strategic tax planning decision. The ideal time to make the switch is between ages 55 and 72. That's because many people may have a lower tax rate. If you've been a great saver for your whole life, you may have a ton of money in these tax-deferred accounts and your 401ks and so on. And that can create what we sometimes call a deferred tax bomb. And if you take them out of the traditional pre-tax accounts, put them into a Roth where they'll grow tax-free, you can often level out your tax rate and you can actually have done correctly. in many household cases help your savings last longer. This conversion doesn't need to be a full conversion. You can also do partial conversions, and it's important to look at how much you convert to fill out your certain tax rate. So you can look at the different tax brackets and see how much more money you can put in and keep your current rate. We can help you do that. But let's say you convert from 10000 say, to $120,000. you are still in that same tax bracket, but the specific amount converts depends on that estimated tax. So it's something we can run a tax program for you and help you depend or help you determine which rate and rich tax tables, which show lower rates from now until they increase again. And of course, the time to do that is now because we are expecting to see rates go up substantially in 2026 when the Trump tax cuts expire. However, if you need to do a large Roth IRA conversion, it can impact your Medicare premiums because your tax return from two years prior, your modified adjusted gross income number will determine that amount. Additionally, more taxable income can also sometimes push some of your capital gains into a higher tax rate. So we advise people to be really careful when they're making conversions. Just don't decide you're going to do it. Let's help you sit down and figure out whether you should. But for those who are still working, some 401k plans will now allow in-plan conversions of pre-tax assets to a Roth option. But the decision to do so depends on where you are in your career. If you're working part-time or starting a new career, it may be a great time to convert. On the other hand, for those in their highest income earning years with a high tax rate, it wouldn't be a good time to convert. So once people do make a conversion. We suggest that people set aside some cash outside of the account to pay the taxes for the conversion. Sometimes with high net worth households where they know that they're never going to spend all of the retirement assets, in those cases it may still make sense as to do a Roth conversion, perhaps pay the tax with those pre-tax assets. But for the typical household, it makes sense to make sure that you have the cash available on the outside when you decide to do a Roth conversion. And we get this question about, I quit, what do I do with my 401k? Well, you know, you have four primary options on handling your 401k account. So let's talk about that. You know, if you're either quitting or thinking of quitting, the great resignation, or quietly quitting your job, most likely busy plotting your next move, not necessarily considering what you'll be leaving behind, this may cause you to literally leave money on the table. There are some 24 million forgotten 401k holding assets in excess of $1.3 trillion just sitting there that people have forgotten. So once you're formally separated from your employer, whether it's your idea or theirs, you have a choice of what to do with your 401k account. Your four primary options are, one, leave it where it is. It is typical for plans to allow you to leave your money in your current account as long as your account total is above a certain dollar amount. Most people don't, according to Sorelli Associates, and until now, most plan sponsors don't care if you moved your assets out. In fact, most plan sponsors didn't care, were happy to get you off their books, now at least. For larger plans, sometimes sponsors prefer to hold on to their participants' assets. Why? Well, the more assets the plan has, the better prices they get with asset managers. Is it right for you? Perhaps, but you should still work, look into the fees that you'll incur in keeping your funds with your former employer. And Sometimes fees previously paid by your employer become your responsibility after you leave. You should also make sure that there's enough investment options to diversify your portfolio. It's important to keep tabs on the account, too. You stand the chance of forgetting or neglecting it once you leave, becoming $24 one person. So move to your new employer's plan. Your new company will most likely encourage this as they would welcome additional assets in their plan. You should evaluate the plan's investment options, costs, and other restrictions first. And your third option is roll it over into an individual retirement account. Many times if you have multiple 401k accounts, consolidation could be best. You should compare costs first and understand the difference between an ERISA protected plan, which is the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of two thousand or nineteen seventy four, compared to one that is not. Typically an IRA is protected from creditors only in the case of bankruptcy. You wouldn't be able to borrow against your IRA, which you may be able to do against your 401 k although I wouldn't recommend borrowing from a retirement account. Rolling over company stock from your 401 k to an IRA may result in negative tax implications too. The benefits of rolling your money over into an IRA include the above mentioned consolidation and additional investment flexibility. And your next choice is to cash it out, but this choice gives you immediate access to your savings, but at a cost. Your money would no longer be tax deferred, assuming a traditional 401K and you're under the age of 59 and a half, you also may be subject to an early withdrawal penalty of 10%. So you need to weigh your options and make sure your financial advisor that you're talking about, thinking, working with, will discuss the pros and cons of each option that were prior to suggesting a course of action. You should be certain that if you do not roll over your account to an IRA or any other retirement product, it's in your best interest, but not the advisor's. The Securities and Exchange Commission requires advisors to do the following. Meet a professional standard of care when making investment recommendations or provide prudent advice. Never put their financial interest ahead of yours when making recommendations. Offer loyal advice. Avoid misleading statements about conflicts of interest, fees, and investments. Follow policies and procedures designed to ensure that they give advice that is in your best interest. They need to charge no more than is reasonable for services need to explain basic information about conflicts of interest. So, happy holidays and happy quitting. Just make sure you don't leave any turkey on the table. And continuing to talk about retirement accounts and whatever. It's really easy for people to do certain IRA transactions, but sometimes they can be missed. And not every transaction is easily identifiable. Some require a little legwork to reveal or report what occurred. Some transactions are not even labeled on official IRS forms and could go undetected. And there are three items that taxpayers and tax professionals alike can easily miss. So number one is Qualified Charitable Distributions or QCDs. They are not reported on your Form 1099-R. IRA custodians are not separately reporting a QCD. There is no code or box on the 1099-R to identify a QCD. It's up to you, the taxpayer, to let the IRS know about the donation, including the information on the tax return. And since there's no 1099-R reporting code, tax preparers' CPAs must be alerted. QCDs can easily be missed on a tax return, resulting in a taxable IRA distribution. Now as a matter of our process here at our office, we have over 90 households that we do process QCDs for. Every January we will send them a letter telling them what QCDs we have processed for them for the year. And the lack of a QCD code on a 1099 is intentional. It's not an oversight by the IRS. It's most likely a welcome relief for custodians. Why? Because an IRA custodian does not have first-hand knowledge of whether a particular distribution meets all the QCD conditions. It is a qualifying charity. Did the person already max out their $100,000 QCD limit from another IRA to another firm? Custodians do not want to police any of these details also number 2 tracking roth contributions and roth conversions irs form 5498 contains a bevy of information including definitive date for each roth contribution and conversion box 3 ROTH CONVERSIONS Until a person is 59 and a half, every IRA Roth conversion will carry its own 5-year clock to determine whether distributions of the converted amounts are subject to a 10% early with distribution penalty. It is all recorded on the annual Form 5498. A Roth conversion is essentially time-stamped January 1st of the year listed on the form. Add 5 years and a Roth IRA owner will know exactly when those Roth conversion dollars are available penalty free. Box ten, IR Roth IRA contributions. Roth contributions are also time-stamped on the 5498. Technically, there is no place on the 1040 to report a Roth contribution. So, how does the IRS know when a person opened its first Roth and set the five-year forever clock in motion for distributions for tax-free savings? That is all on C form, on your form 5498. And number three, transactions that are missed forgetting to file the Form 8606 to claim basis after-tax contributions. How do you tell the IRS that an IRA distribution or Roth conversion is not taxable? After all, the IRS will treat it as ordinary income unless there is evidence that it should not be taxed. The answer is IRS Form 8606. IRA custodians do not keep track of after-tax contributions, even if you tell them that the funds are after-tax or kept the money after-tax dollars in a separate IRA. Custodians have no way of knowing what a person claims in their tax return, so they have no way of knowing if a deduction for an IRA contribution was taken or not. So anytime an after-tax contribution is made to an IRA, IRS Form 8606 must be filed. This is essentially the client waving a flag and declaring, I have after-tax funds in my IRA. Without this form, the IRS will assume that any funds distributed from the IRA are converted to a Roth IRA are taxable. Be careful not to overlook any of these important items. And that Form 86-06 is really important because a lot of people do contribute after-tax money to IRAs. They need to keep track of that. They need to make sure that they report that so they can keep track of it. Okay, let's talk some more about some additional IRA planning ideas here. Once-a-year IRA rollovers and RMDs for inherited IRAs basically had a phone call. This guy took $100,000 from his SEP IRA. He put the funds back in August 19th of this year, within 60 days from the distribution. He now called me and asked if he can take the same $100,000 out and move it to his Roth IRA and pay taxes on it. Is he allowed to do this? Or do we have to wait until one year later in 2023 to do that conversion? Well, the answer is, this is an area that really can be a little tricky. The once-a-year rollover rule says that only one distribution from an individual's IRA can be rolled over within a 365-day period. It applies on a 365-day basis, starting with the day of distribution. is received not on a calendar year basis. So a little bit on that one. If you take a distribution out of an IRA... And you can actually do that up to one time a year. You technically do have 60 days to get that money back in, but if you've got multiple IRAs and you take money out of multiple IRAs, you cannot do that. You can only take that one time, once a year out of one IRA. Anyway, this rule applies to rollovers from a traditional IRA or SEP or simple IRA to another traditional IRA, SEP or simple IRA. And rollovers from a Roth IRA to another Roth IRA. The once per year rollover rule, however, does not apply to conversions. Therefore, the rollover, that did back in August of 22 would not prevent him from doing a conversion later this year. So again, once a year rule. And another question with the latest, newest interpretation of the secure act, it seems unclear if a beneficiary must take an annual RMD on an inherited Roth. I've seen conflicting commentary on both sides of this issue, including from Fidelity, who's the custodian of this account. Has, has there been an additional insight as to what the IRS is thinking here, or is it just an empty end of the 10th, year or does beneficiary who inherited in 2020, 2021 have to do something in 2022? Well, the answer here is the SECURE Act and the IRS proposed RMD regulations that followed have created a ton of confusion. However, one rule is clear, if a Roth IRA is inherited by a non-eligible designated beneficiary, no RMDs are required during that 10-year period. That's because RMDs are only necessary during the 10-year period when the IRA owner died or after the RMD required beginning date. And all Roth IRA owners are considered to have died before their required bidding date. No RMD would be required for 2022 or any other year during that 10-year period. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on Jemiah. I do thank you for listening, you don't hear me next week. I will be online, but I hope everybody has a great Christmas season. And if you've got questions for me, give me a call, 360-733-1200. Don't forget our live show. We will be live on Christmas Eve at 11 o'clock in the morning. Thanks, and have a great week.
1: Voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC. A registered investment advisor.